Uh, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Um, When Christians go through hardship and suffering, um, they can often respond in one of two different ways. Um, Sometimes people can become bitter as a result of their experience, but others tend to grow stronger in their faith as a result of the things that they've been through. Uh, I can think of Christians who I've known who've fallen into both of those categories. I can think of Christians that I've known who've become bitter, even bitter with God, when hardship has come their way in the Christian life. Bitter with God because of the loss of a spouse, or bitter with God because of a failed business venture. But I can also think of other Christians that I've known who've grown in their confidence in the face of those hardships and difficulties. One very clear example for me was uh, a friend of ours from uh, from our previous church. Uh, this is David McKenzie. David's sitting uh, there with his wife and kids with him. Uh, David contracted motor neurone disease, uh, a dreadful disease that progresses very, very slowly and for which there is no cure. Uh, David died a few years ago. But far from becoming bitter with God, David grew in his trust in God through this whole terrible experience. He even wrote a book about it, a book called Coming to Life, because he said that it was actually this illness that helped him understand his faith more completely. It helped him to grow in his faith. He really believed that this illness was the thing that brought his faith fully to life. Now, that's not to say that this wasn't a painful experience for David and his family. It most certainly was. And that's not to say that they didn't shed a tear, even a lot of tears, along the way. But he grew in his faith through these hardships. He was able to see the bigger picture. He was able to see beyond his suffering and to see the great things that God had in store for him. 
Now we come this morning to the closing chapters of Hebrews, a letter that was written to a group of Christians who were facing serious hardship, serious suffering because of their faith in Jesus. And this letter was written to to Christians who were in danger of drifting away from Jesus because of the hardships that they were suffering. So the writer closes his letter with with one more challenge to them, to, to stick with Jesus, to keep trusting him, even when things aren't going the way that you may want, to keep trusting Jesus. He finishes off this letter with some very practical advice. That's not to say the rest of the letter hasn't been practical, but there are some things where he he directs them quite clearly as to how it is that they ought to live. But he begins pretty much the way that he's been going the whole way through this letter. That passage that we had read to us is offering us the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. He expresses it this time in terms of two mountains, Mount Sinai, where Moses was given the law, and Mount Zion, the hill just outside of Jerusalem. Now, if you know the story of Moses, you know that Moses led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the desert, and brought them to Mount Sinai, where God was going to establish his covenant with them. But it was a fairly terrifying experience for the people. There was lightning and thunder, only Moses was allowed to go up onto the mountain and when he went up there he couldn't see God. He could only receive these stone tablets, he could receive the covenant that God was going to establish with his people. It was a terrifying experience for all concerned. They came in contact with a holy God, at which point they're confronted with their own sinfulness. The whole experience was frightening for the people who are pleading not to hear another word because it's all just overwhelming for them. And even for Moses, as it says there in verse 21, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. In some respects, that was the nature of the old covenant. But the nature of the new covenant, the covenant that we have with God in Jesus looks very different to that. What we have in Jesus and what we look forward to because of Jesus is by far better than that old covenant. Pick it up there in verse 22 and listen to this mountain, this kind of imaginary mountain, but he's trying to paint the picture of what it is that we have as Christians and what we have to look forward to. But we've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I mean, the contrast couldn't be more stark, could it? As someone was saying in our Bible study group last night, uh, on Thursday night, it's Scary Mountain or Happy Mountain. Which one do you want to come to? To that old covenant where people were in fear or to this new covenant where, where you're made pure because of Jesus? The people of Israel trudged through that wilderness to find themselves at a mountain that evoked fear and dread. But he wants to say, as people who've come to trust in Jesus, people living under this new covenant, we're pressing on to a greater thing. We're pressing on to life in heaven. 
We're heading toward what God has in store for us. We're not heading toward fear and judgment. We're heading home. We're heading to spend eternity with God. So this final section offers these practical pieces of advice about how it is that you need to keep pressing on in your faith. The difference that it ought to make in the way that you live your life. So we're pressing on in the face of suffering. Pick it up in verse, I go back, sorry, to chapter 12, verse 7, and just a, a passage that we looked at last week. But, but listen to what he says about the suffering that we face. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? And then partway through verse 10. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. When he uses that word discipline there, I don't think we're supposed to think of that as being punishment. It's training. That's what the writer's talking about. Uh, When I was younger, I played rugby. Not very well, but I played for a few years. And uh, this is the thing that I used to hate most of all at training. I loved playing rugby on the weekend. Gee, I hated training. It was just the most miserable experience. We used to train on this oval in Pennant Hills. That uh, there were, I'm sure there were times during winter when there were two inches of ice on the grass. It was just freezing cold. It wasn't daytime training like these guys. It was nighttime training. So you're diving around, hitting these tackling bags on the cold, wet ground... It was just a positively miserable experience. But the coach knew that this was a discipline that we needed. We needed to to know how to tackle if we were going to play this game. We needed to practice it. We needed to do it so that when we got to the game on Saturday, it would be second nature because we'd been trained. No one enjoyed diving around on the wet grass, but we knew it was a discipline that we needed to endure. And the writer's saying he doesn't want his friends to become bitter because of what's happened. He doesn't want them to be discouraged or lose heart as they face their hardships and their difficulties. He says that he wants them to learn. He wants them to grow as a result of all of these things. He wants them to be stronger in their faith because of what's happened to them. But above all, he wants them to look forward to the great hope that they have in heaven. See, if you think that this is all there is to life, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years if you're lucky, if you think that this is all that you get, well, you would become bitter if your business fails, wouldn't you? I mean, it would be right to feel bitter if you suffered some kind of illness like David. If your life was cut short, if you didn't get to see your kids grow up and go to university and marry, if you didn't get to enjoy your retirement with your wife, you could understand that someone would be bitter if this was all there was to life. But when we see things in a proper perspective, when we see things from the perspective of heaven, then we can face our troubles knowing that God's got it under control. We can face our problems knowing that God has better things in store for us. We can face our hardships knowing that this is not all there is to life. We looked at the example of Jesus from chapter 12 last week. Can you go back there, chapter 12, verse number 2? 
And look at the way that Jesus endured suffering. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You want to see the example that you should follow? There it is. Jesus. Isn't it? It's an interesting way of expressing it, isn't it? For the joy set before him. He knew what was to come, that he would be sitting at the right hand of his Father in heaven. So whatever happens down here, well, it just didn't really matter. For the joy that was set before him was willing to endure the cross, scorning its shame, saying this is nothing, because he knew what God had in store. We should view our hard times that way, knowing what God has in store for us. And knowing that even in these hard times, this is training, this is good discipline. Again, I don't want to suggest for a moment that it will always be easy or that there'll be no tears or that we'll laugh our way through those things. That's not the case at all. But we do need to keep the big picture in mind and remember what God has in store for us. But he says that we're to press on our, in our relationships with others as well. Verse 14, right at the beginning of the passage we're looking at, says this, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Christians need to be peacemakers. They need to be the kind of neighbours who are always seeking to sort out disputes rather than create them. They need to be peaceful people, not peaceful people, not troublemakers or divisive. Uh, when our kids were younger and attending a primary school, um, Debbie became involved in the PNC. She was the president of the PNC for four years. And one of the reasons that she got involved is that she knew that the PNC was the big trouble ground in the school. This is where all the, all the, all the parents who wanted to whinge and complain about things used to get together once a month. So she decided the best thing to do would be to get involved, became the deputy president, then the president of the PNC, to try and be that peacemaker, to try and help others to live in peace. But he also says this, the beginning of chapter 13. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strainers, uh, strangers, for by so doing, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. In a word, he's saying love one another, isn't he? I mean, it's that message that comes up all the way through the pages of the New Testament. When it comes to our brothers and sisters, those connected with our church here, we need to make sure that we love each other, that we have a genuine concern for each other, that we know each other, that we're not distant and remote and not wanting to get too involved. We're wanting to get very involved in the lives of others and concerned about how they're going. may cost you time and effort, but the Bible keeps saying that you need to do it. And the love that we show to each other, it will actually be reflected to the rest of our world. They'll see that. But we're also to press on in the attitudes that we have as Christians. There's two areas that uh, that stick out in this passage. Uh, Chapter 13, verse number 5, look at what he says there. Keep yourselves free from the love of money 
and be content with what you have because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? One of the distinguishing things about Christians ought to be that they handle their money a little differently to others. I'm sure that you can think of people, perhaps even members of your family, whose lives are are dominated by money. That seems to be the only thing they ever talk about. Some new scheme, some investment that they've got that's really going to set them up for later life. They're never satisfied with what they have. They measure their success by their money and the things that money can buy. And we're encouraged to be like that. We're encouraged to view our world that way. That this world's an opportunity for me to make as much money as I possibly can. But we're not to be lovers of money. And we're to be satisfied with what we do have. And we should use what we do have for God's glory so that God can be honoured in the way that we spend our money. To make sure that the gospel's being preached, to make sure that, that we're supporting Christian ministries. I remember I had a friend uh, who decided to go to a theological college. He trained to be a doctor and had worked for a very short time as a doctor, but made the decision to head off to theological college. His family and most of his friends just thought he was crazy. Why in the world would you do that? You've got this great career ahead of you where you can earn loads of money. Why would you turn your back on that? Well, he knew that life wasn't about how much money he made, that it was about serving God and and doing that in the best possible way. The other attitude that he challenges us with in this passage um, is chapter 12, verse 16, and then chapter 13, verse 4, two verses about sexuality or sex. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, And then chapter 13, verse 4, he says this, Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. There have been some huge changes in our society in recent years about sex and relationships. But interestingly, God's attitudes haven't changed. And the changes that we've seen in our society, well, it's really only making it more like the society of this day. I mean, the sexuality in the, in the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire, strike it, it'd make even the most open-minded people today blush. But he's saying that the marriage relationship should be honoured. God still considers that sex is something for a committed, lifelong relationship. There'll be plenty of pressure for the Christian church to conform to what the rest of the world thinks and says and does. And we need to be committed to God's attitude about relationships and sex. We need to be ready to persevere because it won't always be easy. And we're going to look more and more stupid in our society. I'm very convinced of that. But who are we committed to trusting? Who are we committed to believing? Well, that brings us to the end of Hebrews. I know it's been only a flying visit and we've really only skimmed over the top of it and there are probably still plenty of verses where you're wondering, what in the world does that mean? Well, that's why you need to come along to Bible study because we sit around together and say, what in the world does that mean? But I think if you had to sum up what this book was about, it's really very, very simple. I think if you got, if you said to the writer, quick summary, Hebrews, what's it about? He'd say this, stick with Jesus. 
Now that might sound very simplistic, but I think that's what the book's about. See, there was a very real danger that these people were going to drift away from Jesus because of the hardship and the suffering and the persecution that they faced. And it's very easy for us to look at this book of Hebrews and say, well, we don't face those dangers, so maybe this message isn't for us. And it's true, we don't face the same dangers of them. I doubt that any of us will suffer any physical persecution because of our faith in Jesus. But it won't be persecution that will cause us to drift away from Jesus. It'll be more subtle things, like attitudes about money and sex. Um, Most of the people who I can think of who've drifted away from the Christian church have probably drifted away from one of those two things. They didn't like the church's attitude about that, so they want to go off and make their own life. Or money was the thing that has seduced them. We probably won't drift away because people are hostile to us, but sometimes we will be tempted to drift away because we don't fit in at work or possibly even within our family. But the challenge of the writer is giving to his friends is make sure you stick with Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on what God has in store for you. This is Florence Chadwick. On the 4th of July 1952, she stepped off Catalina Island off the west coast of the United States of America to swim to mainland California. It's a swim of about 45 kilometres to the mainland, but she was a very experienced distance swimmer. In fact, she was the first swimmer to swim the English Channel both ways. The day was cold and foggy, not the best conditions for the swim. And after 15 hours of swimming, Chadwick began pleading with her crew to pull her out of the water. The fog was so thick that they had absolutely no idea where they were. They tried to keep urging her on, but it was hopeless, and ultimately they pulled her up into the boat. The boat headed through the fog, only to discover that they were 800 metres from the shore. At the news conference the following day, Chadwick was asked the inevitable question. How did you feel knowing that you'd got so close? She roughly said this. I don't want to make excuses for myself. I'm the one who asked to be pulled out of the water. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have been able to make it. Well, isn't that what the writer of Hebrews is saying? We can see the shore. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let me read you again those verses from the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Throw off the things that hinder. Run the race with perseverance. And keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.